How you doing? Good. How are you? Good. I'm trying to blow some tobacco smoke on the screen to symbolically purify the communication channel. Oh, nice. It's not working you know, very well. <laughs> with all these Zoom calls, this is the first time I've had that happen, and I'm actually surprised this is the first time. <laughs> I would think there would be more shamanic technological penetration by this point. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, it's good to, good to reconnect. Uh, I like what you guys have been doing. I've just been trying to uh, sink into all the content you've been producing. It's it's quite a bit. Uh, it's great. Future Faces of Spirit. Watched a couple of those with like uh, Brad and uh, Joran and um, uh, Benita Roy. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to digging into the John Verveke one. Haven't gotten to that yet, but yeah, nice stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff on there. I can barely keep up with it. It's hard enough just to participate, let alone <laughs> view it all and digest it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right, I'll do a little intro for this thing. Sure, sure. Get going. Great. Uh, how did that go? Right, this is a new series on the integral stage. We're going to be talking with podcasters, YouTubers, and their ilk, people who are trying to offer or who can't help but offer more integrative perspectives. That means a focus on transforming, transcending, integrating, upgrading, and evolving within hybrid, more complex, meta-level, and depth-oriented spaces and practices. Who are these people doing this? What do they collectively understand and point towards? How can they be interlinked, mutually supported, clarified, and amplified? That's the project. We'll see what emerges. Helping us think through it today is Jeremy Johnson, neo Gebsarian, integral leftist, and a driving force behind things like mutations and growing down. Jeremy, before we get into some issues, uh, maybe you'd give us a sense of what are these internet communication projects that you're involved in and where can people find them? Sure. Uh, that's that's one hell of an intro, Layman. That's great. <laughs> did you memorize that? Uh, yeah. I was like, I had notes for it when I did it with Stephanie, but now I got it pretty good. That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so first of all, uh, thanks for having me on. It's it's great to be involved in this project, and uh, uh, I've been involved in a couple of different different domains. Uh, I've got my own podcast that I've been running for a couple of years. It's, it's a slow cooking, slow brewing show called Mutations. So, you know, it's not very uh, high demand or high productivity, but I still try to have very substantive conversations about the evolution of consciousness, alternative scholarship, et cetera. Um, and on top of that, I've recently started the Growing Down podcast with my co-hosts, uh, Ryan and Matt. Uh, Growing Down is more explicitly related to the integral community in that we're looking for, well, we're we're looking to provide a kind of alternative leftist oriented perspective on current events and politics from an integrally informed community, right? So we all associate ourselves as integralists or identify as integralists in some way or some fashion. And, you know, in, in sort of the mainstream or mainstream, like through integral life, through kind of the more main branches of, of integral production, integral media, there really isn't a, a leftist wing, right? Uh, folks who are kind of really swimming in that. So we wanted to provide that. And the whole idea behind growing down um, is essentially there's so much emphasis on growing up, growing up, waking up, showing up, cleaning up, 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 up. So what happens if we take the Hillman approach, right? The whole theme of growing down for James Hillman is this sense of like growing your roots down into the world, right? Insolment, um, how to fully participate in the depths of your life in life as you know all of the struggles and pathos that emerge in that so 
I like that as a theme. It's sort of a countercurrent. Um, it's something a little bit different, and that's why we ended up uh, calling it Growing Down. But the whole idea is to really get involved in material politics, um, transformative change through a kind of materialist lens. And I don't mean this in like the extreme sense of materialism, but just having a literacy around, you know, uh, the material basis of, of economics and politics, et cetera. So long story short, those are the two podcasts. And I'm also involved in all these other projects, of course, but we can kind of orbit around things and, and bring them up as they come up. So sure, we'll, uh, we'll traipse through a lot of that stuff. Yeah. I'm sure. Um, on this, this growing down thing, like I think a lot of people when they think of growing down, think immediately of, of embodiment and of reconnecting shadow material and emotional material and physiological material. How do you see that linking into the project of progressive politics? Yeah, great question. Um, uh, you know, unfortunately, I don't think in progressive politics, there's much of an emphasis on that either, right? Or even in the Hillman sense of insolment and depth psychology. So that's kind of, and this is something I've been talking with Matt about, especially on, on the podcast, I think, like working with shadow, working with um, these elements that of meaning making that the left hasn't really addressed, right? And I can't really speak to embodiment practices or embodiment studies myself, but that's certainly, we, we'd certainly be open to exploring that with somebody who wanted to come on the show and, and talk about it. But, um, you know, I think, I think that the left is sort of going through its own potential transformation right now, not only in the United States, but, you know, I think globally speaking, um, we've been seeing, of course, the rise of authoritarian regimes and, um, uh, of course, with the with the current pandemic and the economic bailout, you know that there's there's certainly a civilizational crisis going on, and the question is like why isn't the left succeeding at providing the answers in a way um, you know that we would expect it to or we were hoping to have more traction with at this point. So I think there's a lot of soul searching actually uh, right now, and I think it's a good opportunity. I've been talking a lot with um with Michael Brooks, he's the host of the, the Michael Brooks show and uh, co-host of Majority Report. And one of the things that he mentions in his new book, uh, Against the Web, is the need for the left to develop a kind of, he calls it a cosmopolitan socialism, um, a cosmopolitan socialist answer to the new right. And but he, what he means by that partly is actually looking at these questions, right? Like actually bringing up questions of, well, you know, the left is meant to or, or supposed to be representing this kind of answer to alienation in culture, sort of an answer to capitalism and the alienating nature of our economic ideology. So why aren't we talking more about meaning making? Why aren't we talking about insolment? Why do we write off people who have some kind of religious identification or affiliation as, you know, you know, being, um, uh, I, I don't know that there's all sorts of, uh, you know, negative statements about people who have a spiritual bent. So like those kind of riffs really need to be looked at. And what Brooks is arguing for, and I think is a very integral perspective, is that we have to address the meaning crisis, like Verveke would be positing, as part of the answer that the left needs to offer people. So that's sort of, a, for me anyway, like that's what I'm really looking at in terms of my contributions to to the podcast is, is how can we... Um, use this leftist orientation, but be bringing in more substantive meaning-making questions and spiritual questions. So people don't necessarily funnel to the right, right? Or funnel into the intellectual dark web. 
looking for those answers, right? Because the left isn't really addressing them directly. So that's a kind of a mediational project, I think. It's, it's still prefigurative in that I don't know how well the left is really doing this or how well people are listening to, to, to Brooks and people like Brooks, but I think this is the project right now. And hence, I think it's an integral project. So um, I don't know if that directly answered your question there, but. Uh, no, but it's a great theme. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the idea of what progressives need to fold in the other yeah. dimensions of experience they need in order to have the energy of a complete platform seems mm-hmm. essential. I, you made me think what you were talking of uh, a couple of years ago, Jordan Peterson interviewed Camille Paglia mm. and she was sort of pushing back on his understanding of postmodernism. She was saying that all the real postmodernists she knew left and went back to the land that they were focused on ecological and somatic experience. And none of the real ones went into academia Mm-hmm. So that down the line, the academic impression of what postmodernism stands for is actually something way off base. So what do you think people get wrong about postmodernism, pluralism, progressivism, green? Like in general, what are the limiting misconceptions that people come at it from? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I think part this is not just an integral centric question either, right? Because this is this is sort of part of the larger culture war. But you know, I think um, some of the worst aspects of of our current communication medium uh, and social media, like Twitter and, and dogpiling on Twitter, um, it represents sort of a not necessarily an, a problem exclusive to the left, but a problem that is endemic to um, the media ecology we find ourselves swimming in, in terms of tribalization. Um, mass dogpiling on somebody who we want to cancel, etc. So, I I think the left certainly has a has some issues with this, and and folks like Mark Fisher, right, in his essay, um, exiting the vampire castle, I think is a, a sort of a good example of the left kind of critiquing itself. Um, but in terms of green meme and the way uh, the way the left has been sort of framed, maybe by integralists as being well, we want everybody to be equal and we want it now. And we're just, we have this kind of totalizing puritanical vision for the way the world needs to be. I think the most vocal people on the left on, on the internet might be like that. I think, you know, people on college campuses might be like that. Um, not everybody, uh, but they're certainly not representative of everyone on the left. And then there's this deeper question, which isn't really an answer um, or a solution, but there's a kind of bifurcation, I feel, between quote-unquote woke left communities and culture and more quote-unquote classical left in terms of the economic focus, right? And I think neoliber- the neoliberal ideology has been very successful at capturing the identitarian element of the left and kind of going, you know, we can have uh, a, a, a racially, um, uh, ethnically diverse uh, um, CEO of some company like Pepsi or something along those lines and still kind of produce and reify the same violent economic patterns. Um, you know, so I think that that's the, one of the biggest divides that we're also trying to overcome is coalition build between, again, the more identity-oriented leftists and then the more economically-oriented leftists. They need to get along better. Um, so I think the left is a bit fractioned, and I think it's a bit fragmented, but that's not necessarily 
all the left's fault. I think this has to do more with some of the underlying media, as I mentioned earlier, the underlying media ecologies of our culture, which are still very much rooted in perspectival um, fragmentation, right? I think this is a kind of the part of the crisis of consciousness in our time, right? That our technologies and social technologies exacerbate perspectivalism um, over actually building coalitions, right? And then our economic drivers, in terms of neoliberalism, uh, continue to capture and take advantage of that fragmentation and atomization and actually really thrive off of it. So we're kind of dealing with an environmental, socially environmental uh, crisis here. Um, so long story short, um, you know, we can see the polarization take place and see the reaction to the kind of over zealousness of the left, the mean green meme, I think, in culture. And we can understand some of the pressure has been, you know, people go to the intellectual dark web as a sort of a counter to what they see online. And I, un I understand those things. You know, I think that's, that's definitely a legitimate criticism. But again, you know, I think without a, 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 a literacy in some of these economic ideologies, which drive this fractioning and atomization, you know, we're, we're not really being able to get to the heart of it. You know, we're not really being able to get to the remedial possibilities to overcome these cultural divisions. Um, and then as maybe as a Gebserian, I would say, you know, the perspectivalism that our culture and our technology extends into the world is not really being addressed either. So the question is, like, can we create a, an aperspectival or integral Internet? You know, what would that look like? What would the economic uh, aspect of that look like? And then also what would the social technologies look like? Would they be as perspectively atomizing as we have today? Or would they have some kind of solution to these crises? So um, again, not in a direct answer exactly. It's a sort of an environmental answer. Um, but I'm trying to hold all of those things. Yeah, well, we should be looking at the concept of the media. If we're talking about podcasting and things like that, you're involved very much in the internet media ecology. Uh, how would you compare it to things like the television and radio ecology and the book ecology, right? Obviously, there's, yeah. a, there's a distance, very personal one-way transmission from a book writer, and I know you've written. Uh, TV has this also one-directional yeah. aspect to it, but it, it comes in teams of people who communicate a kind of the propaganda is in the framing of how mm -hmm. they put forward their one-way communication. The internet allows this multi-directional two-way communication in a more uh, relaxed style, but it also has these potentially negative swarming effects that you were mentioning. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. how, how, would you, how would you rate those different things? What's more effective in terms of coalition building and sense making? What's more dangerous in terms of fragmentation? Yeah, um, great question. I, I don't know if, um, I think the internet is more of both. You know, I, I think in in many ways it is uh, more a more clear expression of McLuhan's electronic culture, and even Gepser's understanding of a perspectivity in its sort of rhizomatic and networked expression. But on the other hand, I think it's still very much driven by certain um, ideological forces that are deeply perspectival or what Gebser would say, mental, rational, or mental structure of consciousness. So it's kind of Janus-faced. And I think we see that, you know, both in the potential, the potential of networks to coalition build, and then the kind of atomization of these networks and tribalization that we continue to see. So I would say it's both. It really is kind of exacerbating the worst of the mental, rational, and 
and some of the like potentially best of, of the integral, right, of, of the rhizomatic age. Uh, so the tensions are there, and I don't think we've really fully worked them through yet, um, you know, especially with the economic pressures to sort of maintain reality tunnels and reality bubbles, uh, especially on Facebook and Twitter, where you can really insulate yourself in your own media ecology. And there's a lot of economic drivers for that in sort of aggregating your data, selling it back to you, et cetera. So, you know, there's some conflicting forces in, in the internet medium in which, you know, the, there is a subtler sublimation of that framing. Whereas like maybe in television, it was easier to catch because it's a, literally a box and it has a certain ideology around it. And there's tons of, there's tons of great literature and academic literature about, you know, um, the, the, the age of television and sort of the inframing of culture and ideology and propaganda. So it's a little bit more two-dimensional, but I think with the internet, it's, it's still going on. It's just sort of hyper-complexified, right? Um, and, and sort of underneath the surface, but it's still going on, right? And as McLuhan would say, you know, if it's still in the medium, it's still influencing us. It's still in the, in the background, not in the foreground. So overcoming that I think is going to be very difficult, but, um, you know, I think people are always experimenting with different, you know, alternative communication mediums in terms of getting off of Facebook and, uh, exploring not cryptocurrency exactly, but blockchain alternatives. And but we're, we're still very much again in this middle space between the two. Um, both fragmenting and connecting at the same time. And that's what's so frustrating about this, this moment. <laughs> How do you personally um, get outside of information cul-de-sacs that are being sold back to you? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, you know what's funny? I think, you know, the concept of McLuhan's uh, retrieval is, is helpful here. Um, Going back to old mediums, uh, just going back to books sometimes can be uh, a good way to shift in terms of like, all right, this is not catering an exact message for me, right? If I go uh, read a book that I'm not very familiar with or an academic tradition I'm not very familiar with, there's a lot of intersections that start to hit me from different fields and different perspectives. So I would say retrieval um, and then maybe retrieval in the sense of going analog. And maybe this is one of the reasons why, um, this is not always the case, but I think it's one of the reasons why podcasts have become so popular uh, over the text in this time, because the oral tradition of communicating with another person, just like like what we're doing right now and what millions of podcasts are doing, um, there's this analog dimension to conversation through the podcast. And especially the ones that don't like, edit things down to like the 10 minute NPR interview that's like highly curated and polished, but like the two hour long conversations where dialogue can kind of flow organically and move from point to point. Um, we see the more complex, rich, dialogical dimensions of human experience and positions and, and, and points of view and where the tensions arise, where the overlaps arise, et cetera. So, you know, I think the oral medium, which is being retrieved in the, in the digital age, is actually very hopeful. You know, it, it's bringing the human back into, into the center. And I think that's, that's certainly a way to kind of break that mold to some degree. Now, I know, like, there are pl plenty of intellectual dark web podcasts, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it's a start, at least. It's a start. So, Well, speaking of podcasts, um, 
who do you listen to? Who do you go to? Who do you think has got a you oh, know, good handle on the medium in terms of what it could be or, or the essence of what it is? Mm-hmm. Who, do you, who do you like as a podcaster and why? Oh, well, um, there's so m- I listen to so many podcasts. I-, I love Weird Studies. I don't know if you've listened to the Weird Studies podcast, Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. I think they have some of the best conversations, and I th- it really is just their rapport together and the structure of their, their conversations. Um, they've got it really down very well. They actually have a recent one uh, about Marshall McLuhan that I think is one of their best. Uh, but I-, I would say them. You know, I really like Connor Habib. Um, his Everyone Against Connor Habib is, is a great show. Um, he's recently had on uh, uh, Shreko Horvach and uh, a few months ago, uh, uh, Bifo Berardi. So um, he, he's at the interesting intersection of uh, occultism, integral philosophy, and leftist politics. And uh, he's just, he's got, he himself has, I think, a very, interesting worldview and he's able to talk to sex workers leftist philosophers um and and of course uh more esotericists so very interesting combinations there right very interesting nexus there so i think he's great and but i don't know if they're doing anything particularly innovative with the medium i just think who they are as people and what their talent is is being able to to hold these these intersectional spaces very well you know and maybe maybe that's the skill that I really like. Um, for for uh, weird studies, is the same thing. Like these guys are very interested in the weird, um, and they they bring very different types of media together to discuss, from McLuhan to occult horror to um, uh, you know literature and William Blake, you know, or to H.P. Lovecraft. So I, I like the literary elements. I like the, the the literary element being retrieved in the podcast medium. That's that's just my my disposition. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like that. How um, how significant do you think the the weird really is? Like when we look at the situation the world is in right now, one way to look at it is uh, there's just some very sophisticated, embedded systems of exploitation that we need to fix, and we're suffering economically and physiologically and spiritually from these bad systems. But another way to look at it is shit just keeps getting weirder. That each one of the moves isn't just the government screwed up. It's a, it's a screw up where you go, holy shit, how can this be happening? And and, there's a a Terrence McKenna kind of logic where the future consists of an acceleration towards the peculiar. And we're getting increasingly intense and increasingly frequent hits of this strangeness. It does seem like everything is really bizarre all the time, but that might just be a secondary effect. So how do you look at that? Is there something, is there a reality to increasing weirdness? (laughs) um you know yes i think and i'll answer this from a gepsarian perspective you know the way the way geps are understood these movements into these new structures of consciousness is that they're both phenomenological and then ontological right like how does what is being what is what is the world and what is time and then of course what is the self in relation to those things and then let's look at how we perceive and and what perception is and what organs of perception we're using to encounter that world that being um and these these have gone through dramatic restructurings and i think during those times things can get very weird and topsy-turvy um and 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 the strange the uncanny the liminal you know we live in a time like that right now we live in a sort of restructuration period 
Um, the metamoderns talk about that quite a bit. It's, you know, they originally called it a structure of feeling. There's this sense that the arc of modernization is, is coming to an end, but we don't quite know what's really emerging here. So I would say like that the, the weird and the liminal is where we're inhabiting right now. It's just like our mode of being. And I think in terms of that intensifying, sure. Um, ontologically speaking, the, the integral for Gebser is very weird for a modernist or, or somebody in the perspectival world to consider, right? It's, he talks about, it's, it's about the supersession of that subject-object duality. It's about the collapse of distinctions between nature and culture and self and other and, and those kinds of twistings, right? Those kind of liminalities that begin to be perceived in the world so that distinctions and dichotomies begin to have a different relationship to each other. So is, is culture becoming nature in the Anthropocene, right? Like th these are the kind of questions a lot of people are asking, not only in academia, but also very like practically, you know, when you are in a place like, like I am right now, I'm living in, in Florida, uh, when you encounter a hurricane, you're also kind of encountering human civilization in that hurricane if it's an abnormally powerful one, right? Because you go, Okay, so how much is, is this influenced by human behavior and human activity collectively, right? Carbon emissions, et cetera. Um, and so there's this kind of strange entanglement with the world that I think we're all experiencing. And the theme, of course, is like, uh, like for folks like Tim Morton who talk about hyper objects, right? Is this becoming ecological or being ecological is this sense that human culture and civilization is twisting into nature, which is twisting into culture. And so we, we are just living in the weird, you know, I think the a perspectival age is almost defined by its sense of, of strange diaphany, right. Of, of transparency suddenly with the dimensions that we had either cut ourselves off from or neglected. And then also, you know, the future and what we're becoming, the future is very imminent in um, the way Gepser describes integral consciousness. So, Yes. Short answer is yes. The zone. <laughs> uh, I just I just did a mutations uh, uh, watch party for Stalker, Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker, uh, and the, the theme of zones came up. And of course, uh, the weird and the zone are, are, are kind of synonymous with one another. Right, entering a space where reality has different rules or principles. And in Tarkovsky's Stalker, of course, right there's this. Um, very similarly, there's this kind of unity of the of the individual and the zone that is begun it, it sort of hinted at throughout the film, but sort of is consummated in this um, end scene where the characters are invited to walk through this doorway, this threshold where their deepest desires may come true. And there's this hesitation for that final, um, like Martel, JF Martel calls it this final consummation with the other, right? So the weird is sort of, it's about this twisting. It's about the becoming of other. And it's about really kind of discovering that there's an element of us that is uncanny and weird, right? There's an element of our own identity, which has, um, you know, like, like Rilke might say, like this intensified sky. There's a strange interiority to us. So that's what Gebser's inner goal is kind of about. And so when I hear... When I see everything going on in the news today, I'm going like, all right, you know, the weird is this a perspectival, right? Um, so that's kind of the long story short there. Sure, yeah. <laughs> but, the uh, yeah. Bardo realms are proliferating. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I like what you said about the hurricane. I like this idea, and I guess it's a kind of Gibbsarian notion that is uh, things would be expected to be more weird if more things were showing forth in every event, right? Mm-hmm. Where you see human civilization in the hurricane. If you see more of everything in anything, that, that's got to add some kind of uncanny intensity to your perception. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and Morton's uh, object-oriented ontology is a lot of fun with us too. Um, if, if you can, if you can uh, work your mind around all of the different weird concepts and the way he writes and everything. But it's, it's fun to think about everything as a hyper object in that sense of um, everything you encounter is that strange stranger. Everything you encounter is the singularity, right? What would we, how would we function as a culture if that became more and more transparent to us, right? The singularity of any, any object in perception is something that is not perspectively fixed, but actually open, and at the same time, um, uh, not collapsible to uh, the concept of the thing, right? It's like the the third table from Graham Harmon, uh, or that notion. So while I don't think we're going to be running around in a world that is just increasingly becoming like uh, um, uh, an H.P. Lovecraft film or something, uh, or adaptation, um, I, I do think this sense of, of, of perception is going to aesthetically and culturally continue to intensify in, in our, in our culture, whatever this emerging culture is going to be. Um, and it's kind of, I see some hopeful signs of, of this being also a move into, like you mentioned, a lot of postmodernists from Camille Paglia saying that, you know, folks are going back to localization and working with, growing things and and I, I hear an echo of that and like a lot of the communities I I pay attention to um especially like uh Joe Brewer's work on regenerative culture um I think there's going to be a move and necessarily so into into the local the bioregional right um just out of all of the different climate disruptions that we're going to be experiencing and of course if you take seriously folks like Jem Bendel and Joe Brewer about what could be happening in or unfolding in the next few decades. We're not just looking at minor cultural shifts or, you know, interruptions, you know, rude interruptions of uh, modernity. We're looking at a, a system wide civilizational um, collapse, you know, but, you know, collapse and recreation happen at the same time. So we don't know what the new culture is going to be exactly, but I have the sense that it is more of this, ontologically weird culture, right? That has superseded some of these dichotomies that uh, modernity has had a lot of difficulty doing. Um, maybe something much more uh, McLuhan-esque and Gepsarian-esque, but we, we will see. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think there's so many, uh, when you move past formal to post-formal or modern to pluralistic or integrative or whatever that is, you're heading into a space where there's so many networks and so many tangles and your odds of juxtaposition go up dramatically. Yeah. I think in some ways you can say the whole cognitive mindset there is the result of just experiencing so many odd intersections that you become really skilled and comfortable with that and start to think how that could go forward. Mm-hmm. That can't help but be uncanny. Every juxtaposition is uncanny, I think, by nature. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's an interesting thing there that, you know, that localism thing makes me want to ask a question about where are the temperamental weaknesses of what we might call the left? Because obviously 
there's got to be a, a, a deeper internal ability to understand and work with ecological patterns. There's got to be more distributed control centers. There's got to be more local robustness in our production and supply chain. All that stuff's great, but there's also this sometimes like a fallback to the local, just like there's a fallback to the idea that the future requires us to do less, right? to produce less energy, to have fewer people. Uh, is that essential or is there a danger in that kind of uh, retreat position? Just mm -hmm. like there might be a danger in um, not doubling down and being aggressive enough in one's progressive politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great question. Great question. I think we have to um, distinguish what it means to go back to the local uh, or even if it really is going back per se, you know, um, because we have... I use um, Bruno Latour's thinking on this because he actually plays with these traje different trajectories. And uh, he has this great book called um, Down to Earth. And uh, it, it's a very interesting exploration of th that exact question, the global versus the local. And then he's suggesting that, you know, modernity has actually always been on this track, right? That modernization has always been this kind of upward thrust into uh, increasingly globalized, um, increasing increasing uh, capital, increasing vistas of new markets, et cetera, that kind of uh, capture the world, right? And move us into colonialism, to 20th century colonialism, to 21st century digital capitalism. Uh, that th this is the trajectory we've been on. And then the right has been sort of this um, interesting kind of counterbalance to that which goes oh let's go back to the local let's not be all about this multicultural neoliberal uh globalist world we want to relocalize we want to go back to our roots right so there's been this countercurrent to that which has traditionally been understood through the right and latour suggests that you know when it comes to the climate crisis we're kind of being hit from like a side real realm, speaking of the weird and the uncanny, there's this intersecting kind of impact of the earth, right? That the, the, the utopian ideal, the, the, the pristine ideal of capital and free markets and industrial capitalism is this arc that, you know, modernity is on. It never existed. The earth is not compatible with the ultimate totalizing vision of capital. And so we're being kind of blindsided now by all these climate disruptions. And so the question becomes like, okay, well, we probably do need to relocalize in some fashion or um, come down to earth in some fashion. But is it the same thing as the traditional left, right, global, local dichotomies? And he says, no, 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 it's actually a third attractor. He says it's the terrestrial. And by the terrestrial, he means... Um, both the left and the right, if they're going to actually ground themselves in the realities of terrestrial politics and terrestrial economics, they actually need to learn um, and discover uh, a way to subsist on a limited finite planet, right, with limited resources, with a living ecology and the dynamics of that, and actually cater an economic system and a production system around that lest we continue to have these intensified crises and disruptions. So Latour kind of suggests that we're going to have to learn how to live with the earth and the terrestrial and the original left-right dichotomy of global local is a fiction. It's an imagined past. And then it's also uh, an hallucinatory future, which doesn't exist, that linear arc. 
Um, he actually has a line in this book, which I highlighted and like wrote like a Gibsarian note, like temporix in the, in the margins, because he wrote the, the, the arc of uh, modernity's time has twisted, right? So there's this idea of the twisting of time, this twisting of this progressive arc. So I would say like kind of a, a to rephrase um, and sort of simplify from that, uh, I, I would say that the local in this sense is not exactly the same thing. It's, it's more along the lines of what Michelle Bowens talks about with cosmo-localism, right? That, you know, being bioregional and having localized supply chains, et cetera, but while connected, perhaps through networks, perhaps through some future version of the internet, um, still, you know, building coalitions and planetary meshworks at the global scale is the way we can actually move into globalization that is not modernity's globalization, if that makes sense, right? Modernity's vision of, of a planetary um, unity is actually um, a, a perspectival illusion. And what we're really doing now is kind of retreating a little bit um, and kind of reorienting ourselves to the terrestrial, to the organic to living systems, et cetera, and then come, kind of coming up from there again. And so I kind of see it as almost a, a, a modernity as this cul-de-sac or, or this sort of wave or pulse of this vision of the planetary, but it didn't really pan out. And so, you know, life finds a way and we're, we're kind of moving and redirecting. Um, and I've, I've made this distinction too. I don't know if this would help at all, but I think there is a distinction between globalization and planetization and globalization is rooted in, again, these, uh, these ideological progressive oriented trends of modernity. Planetization is much more rooted, rooted in the cosmo local, um, bio regional and, uh, not exactly progressive economics, but certainly some kind of post capitalist economic system that can work in a steady state with the environment. So, they're kind of we're, we're kind of at a forking point right globalization is broken it's, it's not going to work we need to find a way to go planetary somehow and i would say that's sort of the biggest distinction between um the old form of localism and this new form of localism which is cosmo local in that sense yeah. um yeah yeah i definitely uh, in my own terminology i tend to put planetary on one side and global and international on the other or at the lower level yeah. Uh, you're talking about this sort of, uh, you know, there's a, a structural logic that's implicit in a lot of this stuff in the, uh, the cul-de-sac illusion of modernity and the totalizing vision of capital. And let's say the, also the, the vanishing point of perspectival painting, right? Mm -hmm. So somebody um, sees the limitations of that, breaks free of that, starts to see that there's these other possibilities, starts to acknowledge them verbally affirms them, maybe even verbally affirms them in their political platforms, but doesn't necessarily act them out, doesn't really become their champion or avatar in the world. What's, what's missing? Even when you, when you can get cognitively past the limiting of perspectivalism, what is it that people still need then? Is it moral coherence? Is it some kind of emotional understanding? What do people lack in terms of bringing that into the world, even if they yeah, get it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's actually a good side real conversation in and of itself and what it means to go meta, right? Um, you know, Zach Stein has been writing a bit about that. Uh, and I, I recently just wrote a, an essay for the Sideview Journal actually exploring that question, which, which is, 
we're talking about you know, integral consciousness and planetary consciousness, and so many communities are already talking about it, right? Conceptually, they understand it, but there's all this difficulty in actually how to implement it, embody it in their lives, et cetera. Um, and I think part of this is, is sort of really, uh, and this is where I think Gepser kind of comes in and can be helpful in this sense, because his orientation is, is almost entirely phenomenological when it comes down to what you're doing when you're doing the work in terms of how does integral consciousness come online in myself. And a lot of it is, is a, a self-observation. How do the modes of perception, right? Like, am I identifying thinking with being? You know, how am I embodying the mental structure? I need to really understand it phenomenologically in my body, right? how these structures of consciousness express themselves. And it's a lot of internal work. It's like, you really got to get familiar in a non-abstract sense with the mental. Like we think of the mental as abstraction or the perspective of a world as abstraction. But, you know, as you mentioned, the vanishing point, right? Standing in perspectival space, there's a, there's a physical orientation to perspectivity, right? That comes online. It's an extension of the human body and the nervous system, as McLuhan might say. So it really requires us to kind of get familiar with our own felt sense, right? Our own felt sense of perception. And I think the same thing with the integral. Like if we really want to understand the integral, I think the danger of going meta here, um, it, it, the ambiguity here is always that it's very easy for those who us, of, of us who are intelligent enough to conceptually understand what going meta might mean or becoming integral could mean. But actually, as an embodied felt sense, not all of us have that ability, right? Or we might conflate the two, you know, we might conflate the two with, well, Morton, Tim Morton says it this way. Um, uh, he says, you know, modernity has always been about going meta, actually, in that intellectual sense. Anything you can do, I can do meta. It's always about, okay, what's the, how, how do I capture what you're doing and have this higher perspective? How do I capture what that's doing and have a higher perspective? That's not integral, right? At least according to Gebster. Um, integrality is more of this concrete felt sense of wholeness, of verition, and it's a mode of perception. It might incorporate being able to think very complexly, but it doesn't necessitate it. So for me in the essay, I'm kind of exploring how do we gain or cultivate a felt sense of the whole? Um, and first of all, I, I point out that aesthetics, um, art, poetry, uh, cultural phenomena, right? Like the, the felt sense in culture, even around anxiety, around the climate crisis, is a kind of negative expression of this integrality, right? This feeling that we're doing it all wrong. Like we're kind of, the whole thing's falling apart. But the shadow of that, the whole thing's falling apart feeling on the flip side is there's a whole thing. There's this hidden sense of continuity in things. So I think a lot of it has to do with pointing that out. Um, and maybe as a final point too, like uh, Bonita Roy talks a bit about this. There's different ways to go meta. And one of her last ways that she talks about is this participatory holistic sense. And I would actually say that's, that's kind of first. It's like behind and before and through and then after all of these other really cool cognitive conceptual ways of doing it. Um, so I would say, yeah, um, be on the lookout for abstraction and also be very attentive to perception, right? And how we're using our own forms of thinking. It's always difficult. It's like what McLuhan says, you know, like, how do you get a fish to know it's wet? How do we get people in the perspective of world, which we all are, to get a sense that, you know, it's, it's our own orientation around sense making that is going through this crisis, right? 
And then how do we rework that? And those are the, you know, I don't have all the answers to those questions, but it begins with an examination of felt sense and perception. Um, and not necessarily with just grokking it conceptually or intellectually or in a map. Right. So that's the difficulty. <laughs> yeah. This, uh, I mean, everything you're saying makes me think about the kind of gap that exists between knowledge and understanding between mm -hmm. information streams and assimilation. Mm -hmm. And when you're outputting information, do you think about that in terms of, um, are people getting what I'm saying or yeah. are they just receiving it? Because we live in a situation where there are so many, uh, incoming information streams. Uh, there's no real way to tell. Even if somebody seems like they're hooked up to really high quality incoming streams, is it becoming part of them or are they just being bathed in a vast myriad of information that is so, um, there's such a plethora of it that mm -hmm. we become almost immune to it. How do we deal with mm. hypersomatic environment mm. in terms of really singling things out and making sure we understand them. How do you know you understand? How do you yeah. try to understand, say, the podcasts you listen to? And how do you hope people try to make sense of what you're saying rather than just being bathed in the digits for a few minutes? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, there's no way to guarantee it, right? I mean, it, it really is what somebody brings to their attention and their perception. Um, but I think that's sort of what we need to help people practice just in as a, as a general orientation, because like you said, we live in, a, in, in this time where there's just a flood of available media to consume and different reality tunnels to jump down. Um, you know, I think there's been quite a few writers talking about this uh, kind of uh, like, I'm thinking of James Bridle's uh, book, A New Dark Age. And, and the thesis of the book is, is that, you know, the, the utopian project of, making a plethora, a flood of information available for everybody through Wikipedia and the internet, et cetera. We have so much information that's accessible to us, but there's really no curation. There's no real structure um, in sort of evaluating all of that information or presenting it in a, in a human-centric way so that, you know, the count, the sort of the enantiodromia has occurred, right? The thing becoming its opposite. This utopian age of infinite access to information at our fingertips in our pockets and on, on our, our screens in every single home has had the contrary effect of collapsing uh, a, a sense of shared knowledge, a sense of shared world, right? Or a sense of like, even what is going on. There's so many different battling counter narratives. So like, that's the kind of environment that we're swimming in. So I would say, you know, like as a general orientation, like the whole, um, thesis of coming down to earth uh is is both uh an invitation to get familiar with our senses and our felt sense in terms of you know how am i encountering these mediums what am i bringing to them and then also you know in terms of practices i don't think they're that complicated like in terms of in terms of this right we know there's we know there's an environmental crisis. We have this feeling that the whole is kind of broken. So we know that there's this need to basically rework everything, right? So I think we should trust those felt senses the most in, in, this, in this regard, right? Observing our senses, orienting ourselves around the human, and then also when it comes to like prob uh, problem solving and solutions, um, you know, like Latour talks about, it's like, okay, well, how do we, how do we help people in mutual aid? 
How do we assist people where they're at right now? Um, Trumpers and leftists are going to be dealing with a century of climate disruption. So how are we going to survive this and outlive this crisis in a very real tangible way? Like, are we raising our kids to get familiar with working with growing plants and other subsistence questions, right? Um, we're really restructuring our whole orientation towards um, uh, an age of, of, of climate disruption. So I would say that's another way to kind of get oriented. Let's get down to earth. Let's, people are doing it naturally through this crisis. Like they're growing their own food in their backyards now, you know, um, that they're learning how to bake bread and cook a lot and um, have vegetable gardens and so on. So I think that's a, that's a, a hopeful reorientation that I see happening through this, but I think we're going to be needing more of that. And then I guess my, the last point would be on that note, try to see a crisis as a learning opportunity. Um, like Michelle Bowens calls it a pedagogical catastrophe. And I love that term. Uh, it's the sense that, okay, the way in which things are falling apart can tell us about how we need to reorient. So again, you know, we're all coming down to earth. We're, we're fixating on supply chains. We're growing food in our backyards. We're wondering if maybe we need different or multiple streams, streams of economic systems that are going on at the same time, things that are more resilient, right? Things that are more regional um, and bottom up and democratic. So all of the kind of pressures and the answers and solutions to those pressures, even if they're not being listened to, I think that's a helpful orientation, right? That's a helpful sense of sense-making in, in this regard in that we're being we're being we're not totally in the dark we have certain there's certain directions there's certain themes that are arising through this crisis that we can really kind of hone in on and clarify um and that that's i think that's that's what i would probably say in in response to navigating all of this and don't worry about the everything going on up here what's coming what's what's coming online down here with everybody what are we all concerned about well that that seems to be the uh, area we can get the most agreement on and immediate action yeah. yeah, like I think it is. That's a great term, pedal of pedagogical crisis. I think we the extra pressure reveals where the holes are, you know, at all levels of the system. Uh, and partly because we're all sort of quarantined in our own yeah. lives, that's where we have to focus. And yet there's also a danger that um, no matter how well you adapt within your mind and world and family and life, that the source of the problems are up here at a scale and a tempo that's untouched by even the, the greatest change of the individuals we can imagine. So what do we do with that? Like what changes uh, operate at the scale and tempo of the actual problems? Because I always yeah, think yeah. in my mind, one of the reasons to be progressive is we're in a boat and three liters of water are coming into the boat per minute. And we're arguing whether we should elect somebody who wants to bail out one liter a minute or two liters a minute. Yeah. Both of those are going to sink the boat. So mm -hmm. neither of them are happening at the tempo of the change or at the scale of the change. And so even though it's nicer for you in the short term, uh, what solutions can actually fix the problem at the level the problem is being generated, which isn't necessarily our own lives? Right, right. That's an excellent question. Um, you know, Part of that answer is understanding, and this is the kind of concession that I've been coming around to, um, the amount, the consolidation of power at that top level, right, is so ossified 
so entrenched that, you know, I don't think there's any way to directly come at that, you know, and I think we're going to have to exist in this tension that is, we can really only answer things, not in the individual, but we can really only answer things socially, right? We can really only answer things in terms of the commons. And that might begin with our local community. It might extend a little bit further into, into you know, um, supporting the creation of new unions. You know, you know these are kind of the halfway answers, right? Because unions still exist in this whole superstructure that's falling apart, right? Um, and we're dealing with this larger climate crisis, which is just outside of this entire institution, right? All of the different institutions, it's outside of that. We're coming, we're coming down to earth. The whole thing is coming crashing into the planet, into the terrestrial. And here we are trying to like work out democratization of labor, uh, you know, um, uh, more egalitarian economic system, et cetera. So like, I think it, it requires us to kind of see what we're doing in the system may not be necessarily a direct translation into a complete solution, but also the tension is the system's going to have to fall apart actually. And part of the impetus for creating more macro solutions is as those macro institutions begin to collapse, there's going to be need and pressure for alternatives that work and scale. And I think, you know, Schmachtenberger talks about that a little bit, Daniel Schmachtenberger, but um, again, thinking of the, peer-to-peer -peer folks and um, Michelle Bowens who wrote a great little essay called uh, Corona in the Commons where he kind of goes okay let's assess what's going on and um, you know his thing is like look we, we don't yet have a peer-to-peer common-centric you know uh, post-capitalist civilization that's able to scale up to the billions or millions of people you know um, that we have in the world so what we're really going to have to do is sort of mediate that and work on the local while we have our, our eye on, you know, what we can do to help these things emerge, scale, and become more resilient at larger scales for larger people. But part of that has to do with, like, actually allowing those things to go through their death process. And I think this is the hardest thing for us to, to really swallow. Like, a lot of us already have a sense of, like, nihilism or, like, surrender or depression around, you know, um, let's say the U.S. government being able to do much in response to the climate crisis, like just a complete ineptitude or impotence. And part of that is absolutely true, um, which again, just points to the work needs to be us learning how to um, build alternatives, you know, in our neighborhoods. Is there some kind of um, community commons that we can start working on? Um, is there some kind of rent strike we can assist with or, or a labor organization that we can support. Everything that is human centric, right? Um, I think we should really be focusing on any kind of mutual aid efforts, any kind of alternative economics, any kind of regional cooperatives. I think these are going to be the, nece the necessary future anyway, as these monolithic structures continue to go under, under their own weight. Um, and there needs to be things in place as they do. And I think what we've seen, again, pedagogical crisis, pedagogical catastrophe. What have, you know, regions of the United States been doing in answer to the Trump administration? Well, you know, creating their own little, you know, 
you know, tri-state packs about how they're, they're going to open up their economy or not, you know, um, flexing their own kind of uh, California doing that. Um, we're our own nation state thing, like whatever, like I'm not too involved in that, but, um, the regional, the bioregional, and then what Bookchin, Murray Bookchin talks about in terms of um, municipalism, I think might be an image of what the future looks like, a much more decentralized world where the problems of scaling might be um, easier to solve because you're not necessarily going, I need to figure out a, a macro system for 300 million people. It's, I need to figure out a macro system for our, my re bio region, right, with everybody else who's here and share that with other, other people with their own solutions. So I think there's going to be a kind of implosion of this homogeny of the of the industrial nation state, but that's just my opinion. Uh, but I do sense that that might be what's, what's coming down the pipe. Um, a necessary decentralization. Uh, it's a scary possibility. Yeah, like, it is. I look at uh, like the difference between our two countries. My country's had a pretty smooth uh, rollout of handling the situation. Everything's uh, going pretty well for most, most of the system is being kept intact. Yeah. Um, the other side of that is the current federal control system is reinforced by its success. Your system, it looks like there's tremendous amounts of corruption and botching and even intentional screwing it up. But the other side of that might be a hastening of the breakdown of the existing system. <laughs> but can you, in a good conscience, um, urge on the collapse of the system? I don't think I need to. <laughs> I don't, I don't think we need to. I think it, it, it's another interesting quote from Gepser. He says, uh, what is happening today? And he's, he was speaking of mid-century, you know, World War II and then the whole crisis around the atomic age. Um, he says, what is happening today happens almost of itself. And I think when it comes to these things, we, we don't really, we, there's no energy should be put into urging on the collapse. All of our energy should be put into democratizing the commons, uh, uh, in innovating forms of mutual aid, creating forms of resilience at the local level, and then building solidarity and coalition building, uh, you know, with other communities around the planet that are trying to do the same thing in the face of, of climate collapse. You know, it, it's not really like the collapse is already, it's already kind of on its way. It's already, you know, happening of itself. Our solution needs to be productive, constructive, resilience growing right regenerative culture techniques and policies etc so any way we can do that and innovate that and share our tools with each other around the planet this is not just a sense of like resisting capitalism it's like all right the whole thing is going down we need to figure out what we're going to do about it the boat's already going to sink like what do we do with everybody in the lifeboats can we construct something how do we get out of here together right um and what we're dealing with of course is is uh you know like Latour talks about, like there's still agencies and forces, and you know, obviously, um, this way of life doesn't want to end, right? I mean, neoliberalism wants to go on and somehow outlive the Anthropocene. So we're dealing with that as well. We're dealing with a kind of an ideology that's literally, as Latour says, it's out of this world. It's it's just not even on Earth. It's not as not dealing with these terrestrial realities. Um, so we need to be dealing with that. So. Uh, that that's what I would say. Like, no way, no good conscience should we say like, yes, fall apart quicker. But um, the the question is more of like, okay, how do we mitigate the suffering that this is going to cause? Like, what can we do now to 
to minimize the amount of suffering and dis, uh, global displacement, population displacement, and starvation and supply chain disruptions that are going to be happening in this century, in the next century, probably. Like, what can we do to really mitigate that? And, you know, obviously, the solutions are not all forthcoming. But uh, I think we do have more people today talking about this and innovating around it, which is a hopeful sign. Um, so I, I know I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a very, <laughs> I don't have a typically like um, a progressive utopian vision of, uh, you know, a future that's just getting better and better. But, um, you know, I, I hope that through this, you know, humanity can, can really find a way to live very well with the planet in a way that perhaps we haven't consciously done and, you know, um, since civilization started, right? Like we're really kind of learning how to earn our place here in the biosphere right now. And I That's hope we right. do. I think progressivism maybe, uh, maybe inauthentically, but possibly authentically has been over associated with the utopian idea yeah. for a while. And I think really what we're talking about is, is moving forward in a more graceful fashion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If I were to characterize the three factions in say American politics, which I think epitomizes world politics to some degree you know some people are accelerating the collapse some people want to manage and slightly decelerate the collapse yeah, and other yeah. people want to smooth out the collapse so it's as as non-destructive as possible yeah uh, but um we obviously could exchange a lot about politics <laughs> possibly <laughs> i should come on a growing down and just talk exclusively Definitely with you about should. that. Uh, <laughs> this ostensibly is about podcasting and I feel like it behooves me to try to direct it back that way a little bit. Uh, maybe with some forced questions. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. We can, okay. we can, we can <laughs> Who would you, um, if you could have anybody to talk to on a podcast, anybody in the world, who would you love to talk to? Oh gosh. All right. All right. Um, oh boy. Anybody, anybody, I think for, for growing down, I would probably want us to, there's a whole bunch of people that we've been talking about our dream interviewees. Uh, but I would personally love to have Latour, Bruno Latour. I don't know if he ever does podcasts, but that would be fantastic. Um, Maybe, uh, I'm just thinking here, Bernie Sanders, that would be a lot of fun. Um, and in the vein of progressive left, I think it would be cool to actually have uh, The Hill on, um, Crystal Ball sure. and uh, Sagar and Jetty. I think that would be very fun. I love what they're doing with their show. And, you know, they wrote that book called um, uh, The Populist Guide to 2020. Uh, and uh, I really think they've helped kind of move the public discussion and present themselves in a way like I don't know if you've seen their their show but you know they're they're just like any mainstream news anchor right it's a very professional setting and they look like you know they'd be on CNN or something and yet they're just dropping the the progressive economic message and they're just tearing apart centrism and it's just this great way of presenting they've really really played with the medium and I would love to talk with them about that just like the kind of their thinking and their strategy around presenting themselves in a, in a, in a kind of um, a trickster fashion, like the mainstream journalists would be doing and yet introducing in it like a Trojan horse, all of these progressive concepts. Um, so I would love to, I would, I would love it if we could have them on growing down. And of course, Bernie as well, post-mortem on his, uh, 
um, uh, campaign would be very fascinating. Um, with mutations, I feel like fortunate enough that like I have the people I want to I want to talk to on there. Um, but uh, you know, because I know a lot of them, they're in the network. We're in the network together. Um, so, you know, I feel quite, quite content with the folks that I have on there. So yeah, yeah, I think, I think I would say crystal ball and, and Sagar and Jetty for sure. That's a great answer. You know, I, yeah. I really admire what they're doing. And I think the, the reframing of what progressive populism means that you get from seeing a right and left perspective on it together is fantastic. Um, my girlfriend just tweeted them the other day, like trying to encourage them to, have more of their friends come on and try to go like try to model the discussion of how the right and left populists can actually work out a consensus together. Yeah. And that's, that's a great, I think they need to do that more too. It's a great point. Um, it's the most interesting element I think of their show, which is how does a, a, a leftist, right? Like, and, and a conservative, a line about economic progressivism that seems like that would be so contrary to the polemics of you know u.s politics or let alone you know just just politics in general um so the way in which they do is of course you know our understanding of of uh economic progressivism which is focusing on labor et cetera, et cetera. um so you know i think that would be really great i think it would be wonderful to see and in genuine genuinely like productive to see um, a meeting of minds uh, and just kind of giving people more permission to think in that way, right? It sort of builds a culture in that way or the potential for one and perhaps a movement. So I would love it. I hope, I hope they listen. I hope they listen. That's a great recommendation. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it, it would be fun to just like the, 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 the normal progressive podcast slash show circuit of, of, uh, like Glenn Greenwald and um, uh, just sort of the the larger circuit of, of folks who are talking about these things. And because like for us, right, we're integralists. So we have a slightly weird position on these things. Um, and we've had, we're, we're trying with some varying success to kind of reach into that larger rung of the, the leftist media circuit. Like um, Michael Brooks is, is a friend of mine. So we've been talking and he's kind of a closet integralist. So that's been fun, right? Like I think he was involved in the integral community a number of years ago. And so we've had like, you know, off the air conversations just about his experiences and, and navigating, you know, what, uh, how, how to present these ideas to the left in a way that's like palatable and something that they'll actually swallow, you know? So more of that would be really fun. You know, I, I would be curious just to like interview like Crystal, for instance, on some of our, you know, integral ideas and what she thinks about that or what she thinks about maybe cultural evolution, right? Or um, putting them in, in exposure to integral thinkers. Like we had Steve McIntosh on and um, Steve has an interesting, he, he has that new uh, book called uh, Developmental Politics that just came out a few months ago and he's got an interesting position on how do you kind of overcome uh political polemics and the polarities of the left and the right by focusing on values and i would just be curious like what do you think of that crystal like you know you interview people from all over the spectrum on your show um do you think that would be a way to get get to them you know so i would love that kind of conversation that'd be very very exciting to see yeah there's a there's a lot of action i think to be unpacked still at this uh you know, what is meta-progressivism, right? What is, yeah. 
<laughs> because one of the things you get in the integral community is a sort of um, attempt to have a balanced overview. You know, say we're going to honor all these stages of values and we're going to honor the left and the right. And you can kind of sit back and try to affirm all of that. On the other way you can go is there's a through line among all these stages and there's a, an emerging convergence of left and right. And we should figure out what that is and double down on it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, it it's very difficult. I, I've had a lot of conversations with Steve, you know, and yeah. I, one of the difficult things for me is to unpack the difference between levels and value systems. Because mm. right? when I look, I really like the way he breaks down the value systems, but I find it problematic to associate that with the different blocks, like conservative, liberal, yeah. progressive. Because I think they all demonstrate all of those values in their own way. No, that's a great point. Yeah. I mean, just like taking, for example, uh, uh, the sort of conservative uh, traditionalist value systems and what would we normally associate with traditionalist? Uh, I don't remember off the cuff, uh, off the top of my head, uh, what Steve talks about, but, you know, just generally associating with like the family, um, you know, religious values, you know, uh, traditional family values, that kind of thing. Um, individualism, I guess. Right. Um, but, you know, if, if you go to uh, thinking of a, 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 any leftist would be like, I have a deep spiritual tradition and maybe some of them are rooted in liberation theology. Yeah. Right. So that like the salvation of the self is linked to the salvation of the communitas, right? So they deceive it that way, right? And it, it's very traditional, right? So, you know, it gets messy. I think it gets complicated and it's not as clearly delineated as uh, exactly as you're saying. Um, yeah, I, I have, I, this is a question too, because like, like I, I'm kind of a Gibsarian, obviously, <laughs> in the growing down triad. Um, Ryan is, is uh, the, my other co-host, he's kind of in between. I think I've sold him very well on the Gibsarian stuff. Um, and Matt is, is coming more from the integral theory and, and metamodern perspective, but we all kind of, we're kind of literate in all, all of those domains. So, you know, this is something we're always bringing up, you know, like what is the best way to kind of overcome some of these polemics and um, the tribalization and, and sort of fragmentation of the left and the right. Like, do we do this sort of value oriented thing? Is there some kind of integral mediation thing we need to still figure out? Um, is it more of like what I'm talking about with like understanding, you know, the, the ground or the background in which we swim, which is perspectivalism, which is, doesn't really come at mediation directly or come at the left and the right directly, but tries to understand sort of these underlying environmental conditions that need to change, you know, and maybe it's all three, I don't know. But um, it, it's, it's, this is definitely the theme that comes up quite a bit in our conversations with folks. Um, and Matt's great. Matt, like he, he'll, he'll, he'll ask anybody onto the show. Like um, we reached out to uh, uh, Tiger King's, um, campaign manager uh, <laughs> that didn't work out but like we're trying to and this is like to matt's credit too like let's talk with everybody across the whole spectrum right so um and and really try to understand them from this integral perspective so i really like what he's doing because we've gotten some great opportunities out of it um like the, the last one we did was with delman Coates, who is um he's a pastor i think in baltimore maryland a very large Christian African-American congregation, about 15,000 people. 
and he's an advocate of MMT. So he's kind of bringing this traditionalist Christian perspective um, with the tradition of Martin Luther King, right? So it's very progressive and um, basically using or, or working the spiritual community into also a socially transformative community. He's, he's doing a lot of educational projects around MMT and changing public opinion on money and spending of public money. Um, MMT is modern monetary theory, and I wouldn't be able to explain it to you too well myself. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's relatively an, uh, an economically progressive theory about, like, why we should actually, you know, print money, basically, um, in, a, in, a, in a responsible way for the public good. Um, and it tries to argue that and kind of go, like, the argument that they always bring up in all of the debates against Bernie and against things like Medicare for all and against, you know, universal basic income or whatever is always, how are you going to pay for it? Where is it going to come from? And the argument that Coates is bringing up is like, well, you know, we, we always go to, well, we're going to tax the rich a little bit, or maybe we're going to have to raise taxes a little bit, but no one ever has the answer that let's say the military does, which is we're just going to print the money. You know, we need, we need this much of a budget for the military this year and we're going to get it. The Pentagon just gets it. Um, why don't we do this for the public good? Why don't we print things, print money for the public good in a responsible way? Instead of, instead of that, we're going and like arguing on their terms, like, Oh, we'll eke it out from the billionaires and we'll get a little bit from here and we'll patch it together. Um, so it, it's trying to transform that perception in the public eye, and he's doing all these educational projects around that. So we, we talked with him. He doesn't know anything about integral theory. Um, but in the context of that conversation, it was fun to, to see him just sort of bring together the social, the political, um, the spiritual, and then also in this vision of transforming culture, moving into a better culture. Um, and that's, I think anyway, like integrality implicitly at work, you know, here's a guy bringing in, in integral theory terminology, you know, the different quadrants, right? He's, he's bringing, talking about money, he's talking about the individual in a society, a better society, the individual in our sixth society. And then here's a spiritual vision of that as well, right? And here's a transformation of that. So there's this evolutionary aspect of it. So we want to bring more people on like that, right? Implicitly integral people, like finding integral out there. Um, so that's sort of, I'm just rambling now, but that's, that, that's a great approach. I think, I mean, I've, I've been making this distinction between integralists who are first in theory, integralites who are just living it. And then the, what the theory does is just describe the kind of life or cognition those people just happen to have. Yeah. Uh, but they're yes. up there and they don't necessarily know that they have anything in common. And if you can elicit from them, if you can unpack those structures then it becomes very obvious. That's a tremendous, I think, service to this kind of a vision space. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I like also, I mean, there's a question of what sort of aesthetics this kind of a medium should be moving towards, right? It's very obvious that it's a more, I want to say amateur, more relaxed setting, right? It's people in their houses. <laughs> you don't have to shave as much. Yeah. yeah. Um, but also it's more vivid and it's more oriented toward odd conjunctions like Tiger King's campaign manager. That's a great get for any podcast. Because it's, it's just vivid and interesting. It's something you can dig into and you're bound to find some strange energies and odd convergences in there. Yeah. But I wonder if you have any other uh, impressions of the kind of aesthetic that podcasts uh, are distinguished by or are moving towards. 
Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I, I think on the one hand, um, the pandemic has has reset our um, our expectations of, of of podcasting because I think for a while, podcasting has started to become a little bit out of reach of the everyday person to just start one up. I mean, on the other hand, it's been it's even more in reach just in terms of software access. Like we use Anchor FM, which is this platform, and I'm not like promoting them exactly, but I, I do think examples like that, they make it very easy to upload things. There's an app, you know, there's like a very intuitive streamlined process where you don't really need to know too much about sound editing to throw an episode up. So yes, that's easier. But I think the other trend has been people have been getting more professional. They've been getting like, like stage lighting and really nice cameras. And, you know, um, if you've got the money for it, you get your like, uh, what do you call it? The $400 Shure microphone, the one that like all the pot, like Joe Rogan has. So like, there's a lot of investment people have been throwing at podcasts as they get more popular and as bigger, like media ecologies, like let's say uh, Rolling Stone, for instance, they started, um, what was it? Useful Idiots, I think it's called. Um, I forget the name of it, but, but production values start climbing. And um, I think with the coronavirus happening and everybody being thrown back into their bedrooms and apartments um, who previously used, you know, stage and studio settings, um, there's been a reset, a helpful reset to see like people just kind of streaming in through Zoom, you know, I'm like, oh, okay, we've, we've all, we've got an equal playing field now, you know, like they don't have any better setup than I do <laughs> at this point, some of them. So in terms of aesthetics, um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I don't really feel like there ever needs to be anything beyond a clear, a clear audio, right? Um, and interesting curation. And again, that's like the human aspect of it. It's like, can the podcast hosts curate very interesting conversations with interesting people, you know, just like a good radio show would be able to do. Um, it could be eccentric. It could be just like, depending on the aesthetic and the, and the podcast genre, like I love weird studies because they'll talk about HP Lovecraft and spooky Catholicism and McLuhan in one conversation. And I just love that combination. Right. So um, I, I just think interesting conversations, you know, and that's a very human thing. Like how do we discern what that means? And there's a little, um, there's a question for me there um, yeah. because you're know, like, there doesn't need to be more than interesting curation and decent audio, mm -hmm. but is that, you know, it doesn't need to be more. Sounds like it's the minimal condition. Yeah. But is it the minimal condition or is it the target condition? Like for you personally, when you see things going in the direction of higher production value, does that make you think, oh, this is getting better and better? Or does it make you hesitant? Like maybe they're going away uh, from yeah. the mood it should be having. Yeah, the latter, the latter. I, I don't know if a great production studio um, – even if you build it in your house, I don't really know if that adds anything to it or it becomes something else. Like it becomes rather than being a podcast and being that kind of like generative, organic, good audio conversational space that we're talking about. Like that's my optimal, that's my the center for me, right? The periphery or the alternative would be like, okay, you set up a great studio um, you've got a YouTube channel now and like everything looks really professional. I think you're going for something else there, you know, which is fine, but I think you're going for maybe like a YouTube show style or like you're going for 
like a lot of leftist media goes for like uh thinking of like the progressive voice or um there's a few youtube channels that are progressive they set up a studio and they kind of look semi-formal and because they want you know the part of that is the optics of like looking like they're a journalist right they're a new a new journalist of the internet age so there's some kind of combination there um that's fine um and then there's this other aspect of it which you know podcasts are not the only thing now right like we think about twitch and and um you know a lot of podcasters go on twitch a lot of like progressive media is on twitch um thinking of like hassan i don't know if you follow hassan's uh work he's got a big youtube uh twitch channel tons of viewers like hundreds of thousands and his setup is very simple he's just like at his computer desk with like a microphone setup um, like in, in a back room somewhere, it's not nothing too fancy, and yet he's got tons of viewers, right? He's just like he's always generating some kind of like mimetic content on Twitter, um, due to his his uh, live shows, um, and that's kind of like formal informal, you know, and that's like a whole other thing. Um, so I would just say that the yeah the aesthetic is interesting, but I don't think it ever needs to get like hyper professional. I don't think it adds anything. Um, it yeah, might I, I would tend to agree like um yeah. i i enjoy when somebody tries to do a hybrid in terms of the optics between the old yeah. style the new style that's yeah. great it's its own thing but where i get excited is where it seems like it's more ragged more embedded in people's lives i had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with a friend of mine on the west coast about buddhism and he was arguing with his daughter when it started so the first thing i saw was him looking off screen going put some clothes on <laughs> and in my brain, I thought I'm going to start every video that way from now on. That's gold. <laughs> and I thought, what is it like? What am I recognizing there? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Me, and I'm not really going to do that. But part of me says, yeah, that should be your signature move. It should seem omnidirectional, a little haphazard, even intentionally embedded in things that are quasi-professional at best. Yeah, yeah. That's a great, yeah, that's a great question. I don't know if we can really answer it directly, but that made me think of um, that, that sort of viral video of the, the, the guy who was being interviewed on, a, on some kind of news station from his home office and his baby like breaks into the back door in the periphery and, and then the, the next baby comes rolling in on the walker and then the mom comes in and grabs them both. And there's just like, and that was earlier on where that like really wasn't something that happened too often, I guess. Um, so, but now it's happening all the time. And actually during COVID there's just like, Hey, yeah, embrace the kind of like informalities. And I, I think again, you know, it's, it's the, it's the, the medium of, of not just video, but like the oral medium that we're retrieving through, through electronic culture that like has room for all of that kind of messiness. And it's, it feels good. It feels like more alive. It, it feels less scripted and prompted and feels like oh this is just the dynamics of being a person the ambient telepresence of that other person you know a lot of people describe podcasts i've noticed like as um podcasters they really like as being almost their friends right i mean that might sound sound a little sad but i don't think it's really intended that way there's there's a kind of intimacy in the podcast medium and so when you see stuff like that like funny things like you know family interjecting um, yeah, there's just a sense of like being there with someone, you know, um, and, and again, the, this crisis, um, if there's anything positive that's come out of it, it's been this capacity to 
um, actually experience these these mediums in a way not only that is novel, but is human centric, right? Like we're valuing Zoom casts and conversations in a way that we hadn't before because for a lot of us, it's the only way to really connect with our friends. It's the only way to really be social at the moment. So it's not that we are projecting anything into the medium itself. It's just that like, actually we've retracted the, the, the mundanity of the medium and went, Oh, I'm connecting with another person here. This is great. Like this is, this is actually me reaching another mm-hmm. rather than kind of going oh, another zoom call, whatever, you know? Right. So there's a way in which, again, the enantiodromia has happened here where social, social isolation during the pandemic has reversed the, the typicality, the mundanity of, of, of digital communication and actually brought forward the human again, which I think is very cool. <laughs> I think that's very exciting. Um, we'll see what happens when quarantine ends and we all go back to like, you know, being in person again. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I think, you know, th- there's a, there's an unfortunate byproduct of any communication media where eventually it gets kind of like, whatever, you know, Zoom is whatever. I don't care. Facebook's whatever. And suddenly now we're bringing so much more to it because it's like the only way to connect with another human being. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. There's something about the human centric nature of, of podcasting and, and the auditory experience that I think it's. I think those are excellent points. Uh, I like the idea of the otherness and the orality as really contributing to the particular aesthetic because in my, in that scenario with my friend yelling off screen, two things are obviously happening. One is I'm seeing more of his life, which is the reality of the other to me. The other thing that's going on there is it's more like the retrieval of the archaic fireside chat, right? Where you're not just all listening to the uh, prepackaged output of the elder in full regalia, yeah. It's going back and forth and you're constantly a deer just wandered into the campsite. So you got to deal with that for a second and it's weird and it's off screen and then you're back. That kind of like orality has that permeability to it. Yes. Because the rest of the village is impinging upon the discussion circle at all times. Yes. I, lo- I love that. That's um, as you were describing that, I was thinking of McLuhan's uh, word for that, which is there's a simultaneity of auditory experience, right? Like you can't, like with the eye, when you're reading something um, or even sort of like watching something on television or or a a polished television show, um, you can kind of pick apart certain things. You can focus on one thing and another thing, but auditory, you can't, you hear everything. Everything is just sort of in your field. And so like, it's a whole sensory surround where everything's sort of co-arising at the same time. Like you said, like, this person's talking, this person's laughing, the fire is crackling, a deer wanders in the periphery. All of that, all of these different sounds are all happening simultaneously. So there's a kind of a field awareness. And I think that's what I meant by kind of like ambient co-presence in the podcast or in the Zoom call. You know, there's a sense of like being there with another person and the kind of medium you're looking at isn't linear. It's this auditory simultaneity of just sort of ambient co-presence of the field. And that field awareness McLuhan talks about with, with auditory culture, he suggests is, is being retrieved somehow in electronic culture. And I think the podcast is actually, you know, we kind of, I kind of wish he lived to see it or hear it, right? Because of how much it is exemplifying this auditory retrieval through electronic, uh, electronic media. So, so yeah, I think there's, there's something hopeful in that. And 
a culture that's overemphasizing the eye as the organ of perception is receiving a necessary remediation of the ear and of the listening and of the field, right? And one wonders too, because this is the, way, the direction McLuhan goes with this question, like, okay, if we're going to start using this medium, this, this field awareness, then how is that going to affect our aesthetics, our culture, um, our sciences, our arts? What happens when we start to really just kind of play in the field again, you know? Um, and the hopeful thing would be, you know, we take this into this vision of the global village that McLuhan talks about, or this vision of, of, of an aperspectival world that Gebser talks about, and they'll go, okay, well, that field awareness could be very useful and very helpful right now in a time of going meta and climate crisis and hyper objects. Because it's that kind of awareness that is very good at kind of going like, yeah, there's a deer here and this is happening here simultaneously, rather than the eye that tries to causally link them all together in a more linear chain of sequence. So can this style or medium begin to affect the way we think and perceive, perhaps for the better, and perhaps more appropriate for um, an age of systemic restructuring, collapse, and rebirth that are all kind of happening at the same time in the field, right? So that's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> that That's like, that's my pitch for podcasts. Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's pretty clear to me that integral philosophy and its analogs uh, have uh, persisted in a little bit of the exaggerated emphasis of the eye, right? The vision logic and and the worldview and all that kind of stuff uh, still needs to be broken up a little bit into a, more of a balance with the oral and the tactile, as McLuhan predicted. Yeah. Let's um. Let's say we're coming to the end here, because how long are people going to listen to us talk about <laughs> podcasting? Um, what would you ask other podcasters? Presumably, I'm going forward to talk to more people who are doing this. What are you curious about in terms of their experience and in terms of a, a group of people collectively who might be trying to get higher perspectives across in this kind of medium? What mm. would you ask them? As, as a kind of recommendation to a practice or well what would you be curious about in terms of something you could learn from them what would you be curious about in terms of what does it turn out to be that you are all doing together yeah yeah i i don't know i i have like the the only answer that comes to mind is something connor habib brings up frequently on his podcast it's a rudolf steiner line conversation will be the new Eucharist. He says in the future, conversation will become the new Eucharist. And I love that. You know, I think, I think this, we should hold to that kind of vision of, of, or or hearing hearken um, to that kind of participatory um, uh, sense of what we're actually doing when we come together and do this. Like we're having, we're partaking in a spiritual vision of the world, which is whole again, which is simultaneous, which is the field. So when we're here together, we're, we're talking ourselves into this new world, if that makes sense, right? Um, it doesn't need to be um, a linear project. It doesn't have to be a finished goal. It's just about being co-present with each other in this field as the world is arising. And I think in that sense, the Eucharistic vision of this is how do we transfigure the world in this way, right? Well, you know, the mystical vision of the podcast would be that it's in communion with one another, right? It's in communion with the world in communion. Um, 
communitas, right? There's this extended vision of not only human beings in this planetary sense, but in uh, the non-human world as well, right? In the communitas is the extended non-human beings and other kin that, you know, Donna Haraway discusses. So radically speaking, you know, podcasting conversations is to be in communion with the world, right? To transfigure the world in this new participatory sense. And when we do this, let's think about it that way. You know, I think seeing it as a container like that might actually generate more fruitful, more diaphanous, more generative conversations, you know? Um, so I don't know that, that that's the, that's a, that is a fantastic place to come to an end. The mystic podcast <laughs> as an example of the emergent participatory sacred communion as the new Dharma. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Thank you.